Manufacturing Descent since 1996, this is hell. Boxing is probably the last thing you expected we would be discussing on the very first episode of This Is Hell in 2021. You probably figured we'd return with an episode, guest, and interview about, well, something Trump-related or about violent provocations from the right, or maybe coronavirus vaccines, the perceived promise of a Biden presidency when it comes to addressing progressive demands. It's the same demands that have been made since, well, This Is Hell started manufacturing dissent in 1996. Nope, we're talking boxing with a historian whose books have made our annual list of favorites to be featured here on This Is Hell in an interview for the three consecutive years, including in 2020. Our first guest of 2021 is historian Gerald Horn, author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Gerald is John Jay and Rebecca Moore, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. Gerald's book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White, Ca- White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century on How the 1619 Project Misses a Century of Earlier Slavery in What is Now the United States. That book made our 2020 list of favorite books featured here on This Is Hell, as did his 2019 work, White Supremacy Confronted, U.S. Imperialism and Anti-Communism versus the Liberation of Southern Africa from Rhodes to Mandela, which reconsiders the fight against apartheid in its aftermath. And his 2018 writing, The Apocalypse of Settler Colonialism, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy and Capitalism in 17th Century North America and the Caribbean, that was all those books made our favorite lists for each year of books featured here on This Is Hell. And three years in a row, that makes Gerald the first author to three-peat on our favorites list. So we are very honored to start off the new year with Gerald as our first guest of 2021. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show, it's Tuesday. It must be Jess Lipka. Jess, how are your holidays? They were great, yeah. Spent it with my family. It was, it was nice. The guy downstairs who's working on the heavy bag, he's decided to uh, no longer hang it from our back porch, but he actually has the heavy bag stand in the basement, and every so often it sounds like somebody is bringing a refrigerator up and down the back stairs, and that's when we know he's working on the heavy bag. What did you get for Christmas? And he, what's your, the biggest gift that you got for Christmas? It's boxing-related. Um, <laughs> yeah, I got, I got a speed bag. No kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. I'm going to put it up in my garage. Have you ever had one before? No. I mean, I've at like the gym I go to right. use it, but no, oh. I've never had my own. Oh, that's fantastic. That's great for hand-eye coordination. And as somebody who's legally blind and has no hand-eye coordination, I can tell you it's great for hand-eye <laughs> coordination. My holidays were uh, spent alternating between heating pads and ice packs and back supports and stretching and CBD balm in an attempt to get my back right for the new year so I don't have to 
miss any shows because of decades of back pain resulting from an on-the-job worksite injury when I was doing manual labor for the state back before I could legally drink. My problem is so chronic that the back support I mentioned I got as a gift over the holidays because I actually asked for a back support for Christmas this year. That's how bad my back is. In fact, my lower back pain was becoming unbearable early last year, and I was scheduled to begin physical therapy again when the pandemic outbreak happened, which means I've been suffering ever since. Then, Sunday night, we decided it was probably time to bring in the planters, the many plant pots from our back porch before the winter destroys them through freezing and thawing, contracting and expanding. However, I forgot to use my new back support, and during the process of lifting planters filled with ice and water weighing up to 20 pounds, repeatedly lifting them and emptying the melting water, at some point along the way I felt something snap in my back, and yesterday I wasn't able to do what was supposed to be our first show of the year. So my holidays were filled with attempts at relaxation and... Ended in pain. In other words, they were very much like the rest of 2020. More importantly, Jess, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, how should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? Other than me committing suicide, how should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service, which will be celebrated in late July, hopefully, if everything is going well, we could be having our 25th anniversary party on the last Saturday in July 2021. That is, if we are all vaccinated and everything is safe. But at the rate the vaccine has been rolling out at this point, it doesn't look like we'll be vaccinated until sometime around 2025. But the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Mel wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks for all of your support. We are completely commercial-free. We're not a not-for-profit. We can't get grants the only way we get any support is from you. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a meritocracy probably a big mistake on our part you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can direct message it to us via twitter at this is hell radio you can email it to myself chuck at this is hell.com or alex at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of thursday's show when we are announcing this week's winner jess will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest again the question from hell is how should we commemorate chucks that's me my 25 years of radio service, and that's only a, on this show. Unfortunately, I had about 10 more before that, and those were miserable. Thanks to everyone who went to, went, who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support over the weekend and over the holidays. We, if, if you go to thisishell.com and click on support, as I said, you can see all the ways you can help out your friends here on This Is Hell. So thanks to Brian, Eric, Zach, Daryl, Laura, John R., thanks to all of you for your incredible support. Again, if you want to support This Is Hell and be thanked on the air, go to thisishell.com and click on support. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, This Is Hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure. This week's Hangover Cure is the hangover cure used by the late chef, author, and travel TV show host Anthony Bourdain. 
According to the New Year's Day article at Newsweek, National Hangover Day 2021, seven hangover cures to recover from New Year's Eve, Bourdain offered his cure back in 2016 in the wake of the Chicago Cubs winning the World Series for the first time in 108 years. Newsweek quotes Bourdain telling TMZ that his hangover cure of choice is aspirin, cold Coca-Cola, smoke a joint, eat some spicy Sichuan food. Works every time. That makes this week's hangover cure some aspirin, a Coke, a joint, and eat some Sichuan food. <laughs> that's just a hangover cure. That's just an afternoon. <laughs> See how that's actually a hangover cure. Putting people before profits since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways that you can help out your friends here at thisishell.com. One way you can contribute is to become a subscriber to the This Is Hell Patreon podcast, which happens every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash thisishell, sign up, and you will get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon. And you are going to want to subscribe because we wrapped up the year on Patreon apparently with four separate stories of my youth on drugs that led to confrontations at the U.S.-Canada border, ruining any hope I ever had to become an employee of the U.S. Customs Service, as a U.S. Customs Service employee told me in the middle of being booked. And this Friday, we're going to go back 10 years to find out what our guests were talking about back in 2011. And sadly, it sounds exactly like what the left is still demanding today. Lots of progress there. As for my monologue, I'll be revealing what I got as gifts over the holiday season and that what those gifts say about me and the perception my family has of me. And let's just say those perceptions are mixed at best, but you can only hear how the left keeps demanding the same thing and the rather confusing perception my family has of me by becoming a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. You are here, and this is hell, and we are beginning a new year. So let us remind you that you can join us live every weekday, Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time. That's Chicago time. Monday through Thursday here at thisishell.com live. And then podcast shortly after at the same place. And then on Fridays at the same time, 10 a.m. Central Daylight Time, Chicago time, on Patreon by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. This is hell. This is not the Chuck Mertz show, nor has it ever been. In fact, WNUR one time put out in some publicity mailer that the name of the show was The Chuck Mertz Show, and I complained vociferously about it. And when I asked if they would change it, they said they never read my email. That is, this is not, this is hell, and it's not The Chuck Mertz Show. It's not, it's not about me as much as it is about you and us, all of us, trying to have a better understanding of the world around us. We're not trying to garner loyalty or be become a leader with packs of followers, with people posting things like hashtag follow your leader. Are you serious? This is hell is about you and hopefully providing a better understanding of the world around us so that we can have a better grip on what's happening that isn't laser focused on an agenda or ideology first and then brought through that prism, through that frame before any consideration is made. 
You will not hear us demanding you have loyalty to a specific cause, to be a foot soldier in some agenda that has the appearances of doing the right thing, but in the end becomes nothing more than a publicity stunt in an attempt to raise some millionaires' working-class bona fides. Here on This Is How, we want you to be part of our show, because, like I said before, without you, we got nothing. We want this show to reflect the direct democracy that is imagined by so many who are dismissed as utopian. Your guest suggestions, your ideas for topics to discuss. You always have the best recommendations, and none of us would have learned what we have over the decades of doing this show Without your input, this show is about you. With apologies to our staff, you are the best producers here on This Is Hell. I know it doesn't make sense. Why not simply put my name in the title, doing everything I can to become a celebrity, branding myself within the for-profit media market, and work hard to become a darling of the left and cash in? Other people have done it. Why don't we? Why don't I? First, as you've probably figured out already... I'm a horrible capitalist. I'm really not good at capitalism. And to be honest, I'd hate to be good at it. Don't get me wrong, it'd be awesome to not be broke and constantly dodging bill collectors. And I know Patreon has been purposely undercounting our subscribers. Look, I just want Patreon to find the 11,780 subscribers they missed in Georgia. That's absolutely nothing wrong with saying there, there needs to be a recalculation. I mean... You explain to me why Patreon uses Dominion machines. Second, because we don't assume we have all the answers, but we know we have lots of, well, I think good questions, and you do too, you tell us in emails and direct messages all the time what we should be doing on the show. That's why we ask you for your input. So if you are looking for someone to follow, a celebrity to tell you how and what to think, then you've probably come to the wrong place. However, if you are interested in joining us, in helping us have a better understanding of just what the hell is happening, and not only within the limits of our national borders or the political imaginations of the two dominant political parties, then please, please send us your amazing ideas, what have proven to be your amazing ideas, of what you want to hear on This Is Hell in 2020. 21. Tomorrow on Wednesday's show, we will be sharing with you some of the suggestions we have already received over the past couple of weeks. If you like the suggestion, then please second it. If you think you have a better idea on the same topic, then send that along. If you want to suggest something nobody else has, please send us your thoughts on that as well. Or even if you only have a general topic idea, we want to hear that too. Remember, this is not... For God's sake, the Chuck Mertz show. That show would suck. This is hell and we need all of us to work together to figure out why and what can be done about this being hell. Coming up, racism, racketeering, and the political economy of boxing. We'll also have Rotten History and tell you what's coming up this week here on This Is Hell. Capitalism is the virus. And this is how boxing is often referred to as the sweet science, where a keen observer can be impressed by the physical skills, reaction time, strength, and speeds of athletes in their prime. It's also brutal, even deadly, abusive to its participants with a history of corruption that is grounded in the terror of slavery and rooted in the Eurocentric view of masculinity. 
Here to help us have a better understanding of the history of boxing, historian Gerald Horn is author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Gerald, your book, The Dawning of the Apocalypse, The Roots of Slavery, White Supremacy, Settler Colonialism, and Capitalism in the Long 16th Century, we named that on our last broadcast of 2020 as making our list of favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell. That is your third year in a row of having one of our favorite books featured here on This Is Hell to make our list. In 2018, it was White Supremacy Confronted in 20 or 2019. And in 2018, it was the apocalypse of settler colonialism. So I just wanted to tell you, Gerald, thank you so much for being on our show over the past few years. It's always a pleasure and I always enjoy your writing. It's And it's truly an honor to have you back on. Well, it's truly an honor to be back on. You write the boxer known as Bo Jack developed his skill as a fighter as a result of a brutal practice stemming from slavery in his native state of Georgia. Born in 1921, Bo Jack became light heavyweight champion in no small measure because of his skilled participation in battle royales in Augusta, where for the enjoyment of affluent Euro-American members of the famed local golf club, he and other low-wage caddies and shoe shiners were blindfolded in a boxing ring and were compelled to slug one another until there was only one left. As of eight, or 1955, Bojack was adjudged to be the greatest non-heavyweight draw in boxing history. To what extent is boxing the product of chattel slavery? And how much is it a, a cultural and historical universal, something that has always been a sport as in hand-to-hand combat? Well, certainly, as your latter comment suggests, the hand-to-hand combat or boxing goes back millennia. With regard to the book at hand, which focuses heavily, although not exclusively, on the prominence of black Americans in the sweet science, much of that can be attributed not only to slavery, but fighting the process of enslavement. I mean, for example, I begin the book not only talking about Bo Jack, but talking about the development of certain kinds of martial arts on the shores of Africa, which began to arise precisely when the slave trade begins to accelerate. That is to say, in what I called in my last book, the long 16th century, speaking of the 1500s. And certainly, I think that with regard to black Americans and boxing, the fact that you had many of these black men who were involved in these so-called battle royales, which were were, were quite uh, brutal and bloodthirsty, it obviously hones many of them to then excel in the boxing ring. Then, of course, there's this concept of masculinity, which you alluded to in your opening comment. Now, to be sure, there has been a long line of women boxers, including the daughter of the late Muhammad Ali, amongst others, and a long line as well of women wrestlers. But I think it's fair to say that there has been this uh, unique connection between masculinity, or at least a certain form of masculinity, and boxing, and particularly masculinity, boxing, and black Americans. Because although this may be hard to believe in 2021, Uh, Earlier in the 20th century, and certainly before, there was this cockeyed notion that black men were not altogether masculine, 
that if so, they, quote, would not have allowed themselves to become enslaved, as the saying goes. And therefore, what happened is that Black Americans felt they had to fight back against this particular trope. And I think that it also helps to explain the success of Black Americans in professional football, which is another rather violent sport that is disproportionately dominated by Black American athletes, about, what, 65 70%, if not more. And so from the inception of boxing as a popular entertainment in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, uh, you had Black Americans excelling, but then they were running up against the brick wall of white supremacy because many of these Black American boxers were getting paid handsomely to do what, if they had thought of it outside of the boxing ring, they could have been lynched for. <laughs> that is to say, uh, beating some white man into a pulp or into submission. And so then, therefore, that leads to the long-time, long-term search for a so-called great white hope. Uh, you may be familiar with the movie of the same name starring James Earl Jones, uh, the actor uh, who, of course, plays Jack Johnson, uh, the boxer. And uh, he, Jack Johnson, of course, was a black America born in Galveston, Texas in 1878 and becomes heavyweight champion circa 1910, uh, which upsets the apple cart with regard to masculinity, presumably with regard to white supremacy as well, which leads to this long time, long term search for a great white hope, so-called. And you can make an argument that that search has yet to be eliminated. You mentioned this perceived docility of black Americans, and I don't really understand that concept coming out of an era of slavery when, as we discussed with you in the past and as we discussed last year with Vincent Brown and his book Tacky's Revolt, there were centuries and centuries of slave uprisings, almost to the point where it was a transatlantic slave war. So to what degree, so what explains this concept of docility? Was this an intentional uh, disinformation campaign? What explains this sense of docility when that certainly wasn't the case of uh, those who had been involved in so many slave uprisings? Well, turn the coin over. Uh, imagine, if you like, during the era of slavery, if people had dealt with the brutal, bitter reality that, as you put it, there was this transatlantic uh, war involving the enslaved versus the enslavers, it would make it very difficult for many people to sleep at night. It was easier for folks to sort of coddle themselves with this idea that actually not only were these enslaved folks docile, but in many cases it was felt that they were happy-go-lucky, that they were satisfied with their plight, and that therefore the enslaver could sleep well at night. Uh, but keep in mind as well that even during the time when there was this idea that these black Americans were basically docile, that they weren't really men, it didn't take much for the script to be flipped and for the idea to take flight that actually they were brutal meanies, that they were brutal beasts. And in fact, you, you can see that happening in boxing. Uh, later in the 20th century, uh, with the rise of Sonny Liston, some of your listeners might recall Sonny Liston and his epical bouts with the man once known as Cassius Clay, then Muhammad Ali, 
his epical bouts with Floyd Patterson, a former heavyweight champion. Uh, Sonny Liston was portrayed uh, quite openly and notoriously as a beast. I mean, that was taken straight from headlines. And so I don't think that it was uh, a radical disjuncture when you had this devolution or evolution of these black American men on the one hand being treated as if they were docile. And on the other hand, in the blink of an eye, being treated like they were brutal beasts uh, who had to be restrained by any means necessary up to and including mass incarceration, lynching, and all the rest. So do you think whites during the, I mean, this is totally aside, but just as a follow-up of what you were saying, do you think that whites were actively involved in denialism on a daily basis of the brutality the horrors, the terror of slavery. Well, I think so. And, and, and in some ways, this ties into some of my work that I've dealt with. Uh, I mean, for example, you know, I wrote this book some years ago called The Counter-Revolution of 1776, Slave Resistance and the Origins of the United States of America. And in that book, I posited this idea that it was difficult to reconcile the creation myth of the founding of the United States, that is to say these great men who walked on water, the likes of which we have not seen before since, speaking of Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, etc., and this vaunted Constitution uh, guaranteeing equality and, and Bill of Rights and all the rest, it, that was hard to reconcile with the brutal reality on the ground. Uh, that is to say, mass enslavement, uh, that is to say, dispossession and genocide against Native Americans. And if you begin to contemplate seriously the latter, uh, you cannot maintain the former. And as I said, you might even have trouble sleeping at night. And which, of course, uh, just as an aside, it, it brings us to the present because <laughs> I noticed your witty comment about the 11,780 votes that are being searched for in Georgia, uh, which then needs to be seen in the context of an extraordinary letter by 10 former chiefs of the Pentagon uh, warning the military not to get involved in U.S. domestic politics, which means that they know something we may not know. So in other words, what's happening is that reality and fantasy or, or sort of uh, well, reality is catching up with fantasy in, in, in a word. And basically that's what happened at a certain point with boxing when you saw that the rise of Sonny Liston led to this idea not that black men were docile, but actually that they were beasts. That is to say, the reality, in a, in a sense, became even more distorted, but it, I'm afraid to say it did get closer to the truth in so far as uh, many black men re reacted very violently uh, to being discriminated against and being subjected to white supremacy. You write that stretching back centuries hand-to-hand -hand combat had attained a kind of popularity in vast regions of Africa itself. Was that fighting any different from what would become boxing? Did it, did it have the same kind of rules? Were, were victories only determined by knockouts as they had, have been in boxing? Well, you and your listeners may be familiar with capoeira, which is a combination of ballet and martial arts. And it is most popular in Brazil. The roots are purportedly in Brazil's companion in terms of developing the slave trade, speaking of the Southwest African nation of Angola. And if you look at 
capital era, which you can, of course, find online, you can find examples, you'll find it has a certain kind of beauty. Uh, it, it has a, a certain kind of majesty. And it also, I think it's fair to say, is less violent to a certain degree than boxing, although, of course, you can be hurt uh, in capital era. It, it, it more or less uh, exhibits a, a certain kind of grace, a certain kind of delicate grace at that. And so I think that that speaks to your question with regard to how boxing has evolved in the United States is not necessarily what's not necessarily the only course that it could take. As a matter of fact, later on in, in this book, we're talking about the bittersweet science. I talk about an Italian visitor to the United States in the 1950s who contrasts boxing as he interprets it in Western Europe with regard to boxing in the United States. He says that in the United States, the idea is to go for the knockout blow and to basically <laughs> administer kind of brain damage to your opponent. Whereas in Europe, according to this writer, it was much more of the sweet science. Um, it was oftentimes said of Jack Johnson, who I made reference to a moment ago, that in his boxing style, he turned his opponent into an agent of that person's destruction just by dint of his skill as a defensive boxer. You see that to a certain degree with the current champion Floyd Mayweather Jr., who is also a very skilled defensive boxer and is very difficult to hit. Now, it's interesting. Mayweather's fights are, often, fights are oftentimes described as boring because his opponent has difficulty in even touching him. But in a certain sense, if you're a fan of the sport or a student of the sport, it has a certain delicacy and a certain beauty that is difficult to surmount. I was going to save this for later, Gerald, but you clearly have an appreciation of the athleticism and the sport of boxing. How do you balance that with your understand of the historic brutality and corruption of boxing? Well, it goes back to the word you mentioned in your introductory remarks, which is capitalism, uh, which not only tends to convert virtually everything into a commodity, but tends to lend a certain kind of brutalization to everything that it touches. Uh, I quote one source in this book as saying that boxing is so dirty and so corrupt that they should hold the matches in sewers if there was enough headroom. And I think that there is something to that. I mean, first of all, even though, like myself thus far, I've talked about boxers who have oftentimes made a grand living. Look at Floyd Merriweather Jr., who was a multimillionaire many times over. But for every Floyd Merriweather Jr., there are other boxers, uh, scores, perhaps hundreds of thousands of other boxers uh, who leave the ring with brain damage, uh, who lead, leave the ring not being able to walk or paralyze. Some of them don't ring, leave the ring at all because throughout this book, I talk about the fatalities in the ring. Uh, for example, the most notorious example comes in 1962 when Benny Pare, whose roots are in Cuba, is beaten to a pulp and killed in the ring by Emil Griffith, one of the top boxers of his generation. 
And this, of course, ties into another theme of this book, because what happens is that the deceased speaks of Griffith as being uh, gay, which apparently Griffith was. But in 1962, that was not something that she would necessarily parade or want public. And so as a result, uh, Griffith executed him in the ring. And so in a sense, that represents the, the ugliness of boxing. Uh, the homophobia, the toxic male supremacy, the fact that in Madison Square Garden, where this incident took place, people are cheering as a man is being executed, as a man is being killed. And uh, then, of course, there's the fact that the executed was barely literate, uh, that uh, he signed his contracts with a, a thumbprint that he was exploited ceaselessly and shame, shamelessly by his management, who took most of his purses, that is to say, most of the money that he earned. And so in some ways, boxing, I'm afraid to say, uh, represents a rather astute emblem uh, for this system known as capitalism to which you alluded in your introductory remarks. You talk about, you write about uh, boxing's impact on the way we perceive masculinity, but you also write about how boxing is a, an outgrowth, a kind of a something that is created out of chattel slavery. So let me skip the middleman here. To what degree do you think slavery has an impact on the view of ma- masculinity here in the United States to this day? Well, I think it, it uh, see this this points up your question, which is a very intelligent question, really points up some of the weaknesses of the scholarship. Uh, you would think that that astute question that you ask would be in the forefront of questions asked and answered by scholars, but such is not the case. Uh, I will say that we have not had a full or even half-hearted interrogation of the impact of slavery, not only in terms of the evolution of boxing, but in the evolution of labor management relations. Because after all, uh, slaves were just workers. They were just workers who didn't, who were not paid. And you could ask yourself if the rather torturous nature of labor management relations in this country today, where by the way, you see uh, frontline workers as they're called Uh, falling out like flies because of the pandemic Uh, and people in hospitals, nurses, uh, hospital staff, cafeteria, not with personal protective equipment, that treating these workers as so many replaceable parts in a machine, in some ways, that is a description that you could say about slavery. Because if you look at certain slave societies, I mean, for example, Brazil, which imported more Africans, enslaved Africans, than the United States even, believe it or not. The idea in Brazil was that you would import an enslaved African and then work that person to death and then import another. Uh, To a, a certain degree, that was also the system in the United States of America. And you have to ask yourself, since we've had uh, enslavement on these shores much long, much longer than we've had non-enslavement, non-enslavement, 1865 to today, what, 160 years, more or less, and slavery, let's say, from the 1500s up into 1865. And so 
just mathematically and quantitatively, you can make an argument that slavery has left a deep imprint on this culture and society that we've yet to disentangle. We are speaking with historian Gerald Horn, author of The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Gerald is John Jay and Rebecca Moore, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Houston. This is our fourth interview with Gerald, and you can find all of our interviews with Gerald at our website. All you have to do is search on his last name, Horn. That's H-O-R-N-E. Gerald, I want to ask you about what appear to be contradictions within boxing, but every time I see or perceive contradictions somewhere when I have the author on the show, the analyst on the show, they point out that these aren't contradictions, that it's a mistake by thinking that there is monolithic thinking within a community. So I just want to ask you about these possible contradictions, then you tell me how these may not be. You point out that boxing is an exploitative product of slavery, but it also contributed to the fight against what you call U.S. apartheid, a product of that same slavery. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. How, can mm-hmm. it, how can it both be a product of slavery and be an agent against U.S. apartheid? Well, that's a good question. And the answer, uh, fortunately, is, is simple. What happens is that as Jack Johnson, Galveston, Texas, born 1878, becomes heavyweight champion in 1910. He accumulates a fair amount of wealth. Uh, he's followed by Joe Lewis, the heavyweight boxing champion, the Brown Bomber, as he's called, with the roots in both Alabama and Detroit, the champion in the 1930s and 1940s, and then, of course, Muhammad Ali, a champion beginning in the 1960s, up until perhaps we can say the early 80s. And all of these men, are accumulating a fair amount of wealth, even though they are exploited. And that's particularly the case for Muhammad Ali because he enters the ring at the time that pay-per-view is taking off, and pay-per-view really brings untold wealth into the sport, mostly, of course, into the hands, the grubby paws of promoters who are still in the land of the living, speaking of Don King of New York City or Bob Arum, of Nevada, Las Vegas, but it's also fair to say that boxers like Ali also accumulate a fair amount of wealth, and then perhaps because of the objective conditions under which they're earning this wealth, which involves violence, white supremacy, exploitation, it helps to generate a certain kind of political consciousness that causes, for example, in the case of Ali, for him to oppose not only the war in Vietnam, which brings even more adherence to that anti-war banner, but also uh, he becomes a struggler against white supremacy in his own way. And you could say the same thing for Jack Johnson uh, going back to 1910. Uh, That is to say, after he comes under fire by the U.S. authorities, uh, he in in many ways starts a worldwide struggle against white supremacy. He, He moves to Mexico He tries to establish a beachhead against lynching and white supremacy across the border from Texas and Mexico. And so that helps to unravel this apparent conundrum, whereby boxing on the one hand is a sport that's enmeshed and immersed in the most rancid and the rankest white supremacy, exploitation, racism, etc. But on the other hand, like a lotus growing out of the mud, it helps to empower some of the victims of white supremacy and exploitation 
by putting money in their pockets and giving them a platform whereby they can then campaign and crusade against this system that helped to ensnare themselves and their ancestors. And you write about Maxi Spoon, a 150-pound southpaw and the son of Russian Jewish immigrants, started boxing in order to protect himself. Quote, in those days, said this man born in 1920, every neighborhood had its gangs. If you walked into the wrong neighborhood, you get whacked. Is boxing the result of or a contributor to racialized violence amongst the working class and poor? Is it the result of any perceived racialized competition amongst the working class and poor? for what could crudely be described as the crumbs, because this sounds a lot like a kind of divide-and-conquer strategy by the rich. Well, that's not an unfair assessment, but let me take your first point and uh, illustrate that this book also deals quite a bit with Jewish-American boxers. And by talking about Jewish-American boxers, I'm really helping to underscore what I'm saying about Black-American boxers. In other words, Believe it or not, there's a literature that suggests that the excellence of black Americans in certain sports is due to an alleged genetic component, so to say. And I won't bore you with the details. You can easily find it. But my contention is, is that in order to explain this phenomenon of excellence, you should not look to nature. You should look to nurture. And certainly... I think that the example of the great Jewish American boxers, of which there were many uh, before 1950, uh, for example, uh, Benny Leonard, uh, Barney Ross, many of them out of your own Chicago, by the way. I, I, I talk about that in terms of Chicago. And it's interesting when you look at their interviews, they often talk about how they had to fight their neighbors, their Irish American, Italian and American neighbors. They had to develop quick fists. And then this translates into triumphs in the ring. <clears throat> but then after 1945, you not only have the discrediting of anti-Semitic Hitlerism and the rise of the civil rights movement, and you see the rise of black Americans, not only inside the ring, but outside the ring as well. But you also see a similar phenomenon with regard to Jewish Americans as well. That's oftentimes forgotten with regard to the civil rights movement. That is to say, it gave uh, Jewish Americans a certain kind of social promotion as the level of bigotry generally in the United States began to decline. Now, to the second part of your question, I do think that it's, it's an unfortunate phenomenon that because of the violence and racism inflicted upon subaltern communities like the black community, that oftentimes there's not an outlet to respond in a righteous manner, that is to say, against one's exploiter, and that instead that outrage is turned upon one another. Um, That is an unfortunate fact of life, but I would also say that correspondingly, that phenomenon has been dissipating uh, ever since the uh, rise of the unconstitutional unconstitutional nature of Jim Crow, which, of course, uh, is enunciated by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1954. Although it is fair to say that more than a scintilla of that phenomenon continues to exist, 
And certainly it does serve the divide and conquer interests of those at the top of the socioeconomic pyramid. In another contradiction, uh, you write that Mal, I should say, perceived contradiction. And I want to make sure that people understand that after I thought about it for a while, it wasn't a contradiction. You write, uh, maladjusted thinking led to the search for a white hope, a heavyweight in particular, as you were mentioning earlier, who could initially defeat Jack Johnson, though their quest continued for a good deal of the 20th century when the brawny Galvestonian bested Jim Jeffries in Reno in 1910. This was not just an expression of the sport moving westward toward a presumed racial fluidity in the West and nostrum that did not prevent the scores of beatings and killings across racial lines that followed rapidly. The absurdity of the quest was exposed when reportedly the Japanese put forward a brown hope while the Chinese put forward a yellow hope and a Navajo Indian also volunteered, all revealing that what was at stake as much as anything else was vanquishing the Negro, a mandate in a republic where this was a dire priority. So did Johnson's success contribute to any degree of universalizing a fear of or even inferiority toward black people, especially black men? Was it both a challenge to white supremacy and a universalizing of fear and the perceived threat of black people by non-blacks? Well, that's a very complicated question. First of all, I would say that in the United States of America, as I've tried to make clear in books I've written on slavery, that the wealth of the United States was based upon the land seized from the Native Americans and then the liquidation of a good deal of that population, and then the exploitation of enslaved African labor. And there was a tendency on the part of enslaved African labor to revolt, which then leads to further persecution and prosecution of that particular community, which then leads in turn to a certain kind of demonizing of that community, which then underscores the desperate search for a so-called great white hope, which could supposedly bring things back to balance, restore the norm by making sure that in the boxing ring, at least, the black man is left flat on the canvas. Now, with regard to the second part of your question, the, the quote, universalizing of this phenomenon, I, I would say that certain, a historian needs to write about this. I've thought about writing about it myself. One of the things that I've noticed in terms of my own research is how the United States tried valiantly to export anti-Black attitudes abroad. I mean, for example, if you as a Euro-American, we're at a hotel in Paris, and the hotel was not observing Jim Crow, uh, you would object and demand that the hotel observe Jim Crow, otherwise uh, you would leave. And oftentimes that sort of praxis was enough to make for the exportation of Jim Crow. That's point number one. Point number two (laughs) is that the sad truth is as I point out in the book we talked about last time on the 16th century, that the slave trade, the African slave trade, was not unique to the United States. It was not unique to London. It was not necessarily unique to Western Europe, France, Portugal, Spain. That the Ottoman Turks, for example, were involved in the African slave trade. You had an African slave trade leading across the Indian Ocean into 
uh, today's Iraq, for example, you know, the Portuguese had a colony in Macau, which is now part of the People's Republic of China. It's off the, the coast of China. And uh, you had enslaved Africans there at the behest of the uh, Portuguese colonizers. And so the sad truth is, is that there has been a, a certain kind of demonizing uh, of the black population. And that demonizing has not only taken place in the United States of America, but to a certain degree, it's been a worldwide phenomenon. But at the same time, I would not want that latter comment to let the United States off the hook, because as I pointed out in other works, uh, perhaps the highest stage of anti-black demonizing was reached in this very same United States of America. The U.S. exported racism. It was an innovator in racism when it comes to sciences like eugenics. What do we miss, Gerald? This is, again, just an aside and a general question because it's what you were just saying I wanted to follow up on. What do people in the United States miss when they don't recognize that the United States was not only a place that had the quote-unquote burden of racism within its own borders, but was a proponent, an exporter of anti-black racism, an innovator of it around the world? Well, fortunately, since I've been dissing and dismissing certain strands of scholarship, uh, let me uplift the scholarship that has pointed out that with regard to Hitler's fascism, which is oftentimes justifiably pointed to as the leading exemplar of bigotry and inflamed prejudice, that Hitler's fascism learned quite a bit uh, from the practices of U.S. Jim Crow, particularly with regard to laws barring sexual relations across certain gender or ethno-religious lines, for example. Uh, Likewise, it's, as I pointed out in my book, White Supremacy Confronted, which we discussed on this program a few years ago, South African apartheid, the founders and framers of South African apartheid, not only uh, studied the U.S. example, uh, they were assisted by the United States in helping to install their hateful system at the southern tip of Africa. So I think that when we don't come to grips with this ugly reality, we become surprised, surprised when a Donald J. Trump can get 74, 75 million votes demonizing people from south of the border and engaging in the most unpleasant kinds of anti-black racism, et cetera, it comes as a shock. When instead, uh, I think that if that comes as a shock, you're either not paying attention or are terribly naive. There's so many questions I have for you uh, before I let you go. I've got to ask you this. You write, complicating the ability to ferret out the surplus of misdeeds in boxing was the fact that the U.S. press, the supposed watchdog, was often a toothless terrier when it came to monitoring the sport. And when I was reading this, I kept thinking about what the legacy of this is on sports writing. You write that Gene Tunney, a uh, champion boxer, met my dad actually, complained that he had engaged two active newspaper men with daily columns and each of whom I 
I agreed to pay 5% of my purses. And in return for this, they gave me <laughs> sufficient mention in their columns to keep my name before the public and the big promoters. It was customary to make monetary gifts to certain newspaper men after important matches. Decades later, Muhammad Ali's trainer, Angelo Dundee, he confirmed that sports writers cooperated with the gray eminence of boxing. Uh, Frankie Carbo, an underworld maven, quote, they would find fat envelopes stuffed with pictures of dead presidents, if you know what I mean. So how important was sports media in facilitating the corruption that dominated boxing? And more importantly, do you think that facilitating corruption has had a lingering impact on sports uh, writing, which has often been criticized as more stenography promoting sports events than journalism? Well, I think the answer is yes. I mean, the, the, the corruption and the craven nature of journalists is a thread throughout this book. Although, once again, speaking of apparent contradictions, uh, as my footnote suggests, I, I rely heavily upon the first draft of history, speaking of newspapers, in terms of recounting at least certain details uh, of the sport. So I don't want to dismiss sports journalism altogether. And also with regard to providing further context, uh, you mentioned Frankie Carbo, uh, the underworld leader who was the czar, if you like, uh, of boxing in the 1950s when it was on television, sometimes every night, certainly every other night, and of course, regularly, normatively, that as you know from sure from watching movies, if nothing else, the underworld bosses, they play for keeps. And so you can make an argument that these sports writers were intimidated by people like Frankie Carpo, that it was easier to take a an envelope full of pictures of dead presidents from Frankie Carpo as opposed to ignoring him altogether. And you might wind up in the East River with concrete shoes on your feet. So, but, but still, I think the question remains is to what extent does this corruption exist today? Now, what's interesting about some of the books that I've done, for example, this book on boxing, is that, as you know, with regard to archives in the United States, generally there's a 30-year rule that you can get access to court transcripts and all sorts of primary documents, uh, say, before uh, 1990 as opposed to because of the 30-year rule. But after 1990, uh, it's, it's, it's a virtual desert. And so therefore, it's difficult to ferret out what's actually happening today because it's more difficult to get into the archives and have the archives reflect what happened in 2020, for example. But I would hope that sports journalists, of which there are many in, in this country, uh, despite the fact that newspapers are dying on a, a regular basis, that, that, that they would investigate the unpleasant history of, of their profession. And I would say likewise with schools of journalism, like you have a leading school of journalism right there in Chicago at Northwestern University at Evanston, Illinois. Uh, I would hope that they would investigate this as well, because once again, I don't think we can begin to understand this society until we begin to explore uh, some of the darker, more obscure corners that, as it turns out, have maximum potency. 
And you point out that boxing reflected and refracted politics. Thus, when Primo Carrera, he boxed uh, Joe Lewis in the 1930s, uh, Carnera, sorry, uh, this battle of the titans was constructed as reflecting the then ongoing Italian invasion of Ethiopia, providing momentum for African solidarity. How much of boxing's success was based on the success of racialized marketing and the media promoting that kind of racialized marketing of white media dividing and conquering the non-white public it feared yet felt superiority over? How much was the success of boxing based on racialized marketing? Oh, quite a bit. And you, you see that particularly with regard to the rise of Muhammad Ali from the 1960s to the early 1980s. It was not only that he was black, but that he was a Muslim. And if you look at my book on the 16th century, you'll realize that this conflict between Muslims and Christians has been an underlying factor. It's been a kind of motor of history uh, for centuries now. And so that was not necessarily alluded to by the sports writers when they were talking about the demonizing of Muhammad Ali, but they should have been talking about it. And it's not just Muhammad Ali when you talk about the racialized marketing or when you talk about marketing in general. For example, I spend quite a few pages in this book talking about what I call the funhouse mirror of boxing, and that's wrestling, wrestling, as they say, uh, which exceeds boxing, believe it or not, in terms of corruption, in terms of predetermined outcomes, to use that euphemism, but also in, in terms of how the combatants become tropes for different kinds of ideals, if you like. I mean, for example, look, look at the wrestler of the 1950s, Gorgeous George, who really subverted traditional ideas of masculinity insofar as he had his hair in a perm that he would make sure that the ring was perfumed before he entered it, for example. And he was a kind of cowardly villain. Now it'll take probably an English literature scholar or a scholar of theater to tease out all the consequences of putting forward this idea of a, of a cowardly villain or putting forward the idea of a wrestler like Gorgeous George who was subverting masculinity as he was drawing male patrons to the arena, uh, paying handsome money to see him get defeated, which rarely took place, which then, of course, meant that he could live to fight another day and have even more male patrons come in with their money to pay to see him in an endless cycle. And I think that that idea of black boxers being cowards to fear shows the desperation that racists had to try to define and understand their racism as if they were throwing anything at the wall and just hoping anything sticks and not noticing any of the contradictions within their racism. It's just always astounding to me, Gerald. One last question for you. We have been speaking with historian Gerald Horn, and we are so happy to have him as our first guest of 2021. He is the 
the author of the new book, The Bittersweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. You can find all of our interviews with Gerald at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on his last name, Horn. Gerald has been named to our favorite books list of books to be featured here on This Is Hell with their authors three years in a row now. And although this is the only book we've had on the show so far, Gerald, you're a front runner for 2021. <laughs> so I've got oh, one, <laughs> so one less question for, for you, Gerald. Uh, and as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. And I think that's where this is going to lie most. You write boxing was a kind of free enterprise of deregulation or neoliberalism run amok. When we look at boxing, what should it warn us about what happens when capitalism is allowed to run amok? Well, what happens when capitalism runs amok is that you end up with a mountain of cadavers. You end up with a lot of dead people. As noted in this book, I talk a lot about the fact that many boxers are actually executed in the ring. If they're not executed in the ring, they have a limited life expectancy because of the punishment they receive in the ring. And in some ways, you can see boxing as heralding this era that we have now entered in 2021. I mean, for example, in light of the pandemic, of course, one of the few regular jobs that can be found is a job delivering food for DoorDash or driving Uber, driving Lyft. And, of course, the employers say that these folks who are working for them are not really workers. They're independent contractors. Therefore, they don't have any benefits. Uh, they don't have any job protection. And, and th that's basically the story of boxing. They were viewed as independent contractors. They didn't have a union. They still don't have a union, uh, which is one of the reasons why they've been exploited so shamelessly and so terribly. And in fact, I end the book by raising up once again this call that's been resonating through the centuries that boxers need a union. And I dare say, so do uh, DoorDash delivery people, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers, too. I did have one more question for you because it's a question that our producer today, Jess Lipka, who boxes, wanted me to ask you. And that's a great question. Have you boxed in the past? When I was a young boy in St. Louis, I strapped on the gloves more than once. But I have to say, uh, a few blows to the head led me to the library. <laughs> I was boxing when I was 10 years old just in my neighborhood because I got a couple of pairs of boxing gloves. And so everybody in my neighborhood would be boxing. And I was boxing, I was 10 and I was boxing 15-year-olds. And after about 35 rounds of boxing 15-year-old, uh, uh, then three-minute rounds, like you, I had enough, Gerald. <laughs> if, if, if anything will drive you into the books. It's boxing. <laughs> it definitely is. Thank you so much, Gerald, for being on our show. Great way to start 2021. Have a fantastic year. And when is your next book going to be coming out? Because you're so damn prolific. Well, I'm afraid to say I'm in lockdown because of the pandemic. And so hopefully in 2022. All right. Well, we'll be talking to you before then. Take care. It's always great to hear your voice, sir. And Happy New Year.
Same to you. Good luck. Bye-bye. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Now, we were supposed to start the new year yesterday with our first episode, but we were unable to because I had some last-minute back spasms that made it so I couldn't be here. Our producer was going to be, as always on Mondays now, Daphne Agassin. Unfortunately, Daphne is not going to be with us until sometime next month because she went to visit family in her home country of Chile. And she apparently, with along, along with her family, has decided that it's best to stay away from the United States at this point in time during the pandemic. So, Daphne, thank you for everything that you do on our show. We really look forward to you coming back in February. But if anyone listening right now is interested in being a board operator here on This Is Hell or contributing not here in, per- in person, but somehow online, all you have to do is email us. Chuck at thisishell.com, and we can tell you how you can be a board operator here on This Is Hell, just like Jess. Jess, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering this week's question so far. This week's question from hell is how should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service? Adam A. says we should totally create a virtual army of This Is Hell fanboys who ritually get on the internet and complain about how it was better in the 90s and accuse Chuck of being a social justice warrior whenever he seeks out women's perspectives for interviews. Oh, thank you, Adam. That's pretty much, that's the life I lead. Go ahead. (laughs) Garrett S., a crowd-funded bionic spine so that he'll both no longer experience back pain while simultaneously helping advance humanity towards a more cyberpunkish future. Sweet. (laughs) <laughs> no walk w says journalist hitting bongs no question slap a mertz like a very dirty pipe that cannot take it anymore <laughs> all right Braden s a full page announcement in the houghton lake resorter <laughs> that would be good yeah. houghton lake resorter by the way stopped my uh subscription in mid-November. I contacted him. I said, what's going on? You haven't sent me my uh, paper and you owe me like two months of papers. And they said, uh, yeah, they just keep getting returned to us as undeliverable. <laughs> like, really? Because I got a newspaper from Roscommon County that was misdelivered to my house. It was a neighbor who actually got another newspaper from the same damn crappy county that was delivered to my house, but not the Houghton Lake Resort. Well, hopefully they take out a full page. After. <laughs> yes. I think that costs 17 cents, so it's not a problem. Uh, Zach N., a firm handshake and a crisp $25 bill. <laughs> that is a good one. Um, how will we congratulate Chuck for 25 years in radio? Dan K., ex- an extended warranty. Mike M., get him a date with Sidney Powell. <laughs> uh, Krimsky K., free gifts for all comment writers. <laughs> all right. Pete V., uh, with a quarter. <laughs> there you go. A quarter or what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think um, for most of these comments, we know a quarter of what. <laughs> uh, Chris H., uh, punch him out. Oh, thanks. Jack B., personalized bong. <laughs> Lisa B., his choice of gold-plated kayak from the This Is Hell corporate catalog. <laughs> Nick A., 25 different beers paired for each year's TIH favorite book. Uh-huh. And finally, Stephen S., a shiny new quarter of green crack. <laughs> See, now, there you go. Now there that's it <laughs> So we'll have more of your answers at the end of tomorrow's show. Again, the question from hell is, how should we commemorate Chuck's, that's me, 
25 years of radio service. How should we commemorate Chuck's 25 years of radio service here on This Is Hell? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want that is currently available at thisishell.com, and you can see it all when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from Hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have the answer, your answer, by the end of Thursday's show. Special thanks to those of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support over the last few weeks, several weeks. Thanks to Neil C., Leanne M., Carolyn H., and the tithing-like commitments of Magnificent Me and Brett B. Thanks to all of you for checking out all the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history on January 4th, 1903, and Rotten history 117 years ago yesterday. See, that's why we should have been here yesterday. A 27-year-old Asian elephant named Topsy was publicly executed at New York's Coney Island because, hey, no television, no internet, no radio. How, how else are you going to entertain yourself than getting masses to watch the murdering of a pachyderm. Topsy had been captured in the Southeast Asian wilderness as a juvenile, was alleged to have been affiliated with many elephant gangs as a youth, so he had it coming, was shipped to the United States and sold to the Four Paw, F-O-R-E-P-A-U-G-H, not paws as in on your animal's feet, circus, based in Philadelphia for the rest of her life. She had endured constant abuse by handlers and spectators, and on a few occasions she had reacted physically, such as the time she used her trunk to pick up and throw a bystander who poked her in the neck with a long stick, and I'm starting to like Topsy. A few months before her death, Topsy had made headlines when a drunken circus-goer burned the end of her trunk with a lit cigar, and she responded by crushing him to death. And I mean, I am really starting to like Topsy a lot. The bad publicity caused the circus to sell the elephant to a Coney Island amusement park that proved unable to handle her and could not find anyone else who would take her, even for free. So the park arranged a public execution. Makes sense. Abused animal defends itself, so murder it. Before hundreds of spectators, because humanity was even more sick than it is today, Topsy was tied into a harness, fed carrots laced with potassium cyanide. Jesus. Electrocuted with more than 6,000 volts and finally strangled with a steam-powered winch. Jesus. Years later, an urban legend would claim that Thomas Edison, whose company favored direct electric current, had staged the execution to frighten the public away from the alternating current used by his competitor, George Westinghouse. It's true that Edison did electrocute animals for that purpose, but he was not directly involved in the killing of Topsy, though his company did document the execution in a short Nickelodeon film from which it sought to profit commercially. Again, that's Nickelodeon the machine, not the network. Nickelodeon Channel is not showing public executions of elephants. I just want to make sure that's clear. And not that you know, you would know the story of Edison electrocuting an elephant to prove his competitor's method of electrifying the world was more dangerous than his was fake news. If you watch the History Channel, which spends 24 hours a day contributing to the legitimization of completely unfounded conspiracy theories that are supported by something called ancient alien experts. One thing about being a stoner who is suffering from back pain during the holidays, you get a lot of time to lay around and doing very stoner things like randomly surfing in hopes of finding good stoner TV, which means you are looking for the THC 
of television programming, as in travel, history, or cooking shows. And travel shows are depressing during a pandemic when we can't go anywhere. History shows are so filled with fake news, you can't help but wonder if QAnon supporters take notes during them. And the travel shows, the cooking shows, I should say, all you can do while watching cooking shows is worry about the people not wearing masks or social distancing as they were all recorded before the outbreak. The pandemic has completely ruined watching TV while high. Finally, in rotten history, January 6th, 1960, 61 years ago tomorrow, Wednesday, a National Airlines Douglas DC-6 en route from New York to Miami exploded in midair over North Carolina with 29 passengers and five crew members aboard, all of whom who were killed, yes, exploding in midair, we'll do that. Bodies and debris were found on some 20 acres of farmland and forest. The remains of one man, a New York lawyer named Julian Frank, were scattered across an especially wide area, which are not words you want to have to describe your death. Though investigators found some pieces of his body to be contaminated with chemical residue, possibly indicating dynamite, they could not agree on a conclusion, and they shied away from formally blaming Frank for the explosion. To this day, the cause of the accident remains officially unsolved. However, recent unsubstantiated evidence has suggested that the cause of the disaster was an exploding lawyer. At least that's the belief of ancient alien experts. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Jess, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Wednesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time here at thisishell.com. Tomorrow, we have on sociologist Mimi Scheller on her book, Island Futures, Caribbean Survival and the Anthropocene. So we're getting back to the happy stories of climate change. And also, just one last thing. You have actually read more of Gerald's book than I have read. Uh, what do you think of it so far? Uh, yeah, I'm really enjoying I mean, it's, it's packed full of information. And um, yeah, the corruption stuff also is, is super interesting, which we didn't get into a whole lot today. No, and I found that really interesting, too, because I was wondering how much corruption was allowed within boxing because it was exploitation of black boxers. There, there are so many questions I had about that as well. And so, uh, and you are a fan of boxing, and what are you going to school for at University of Chicago? History. And what kind of history are you specializing in? So, like, late 19th century U.S. history, um, like, mostly social movements in the south in that time period and that's one of the things i thought was interesting was how uh, boxing could be seen as a social movement as a political movement or, or what may have been seen as a threatening political movement by whites i thought that was pretty fascinating too yeah no ab absolutely yeah um and just the the waves especially differences between different champions and how they um, black champions and how they viewed their public role was very interesting. And having to uh, so often and they couldn't enjoy their success in the United States and had to flee the country as soon as they were successful. And look at the, you know, Jack Johnson beating Jim Jeffries in 1910. I, and I was going to ask Gerald about this because that that's 1910. That's right about at the time of the resurgence of the KKK in the United States. And I couldn't help but think that that led to, you know, reinvigorated white supremacy because all of a sudden it was being questioned by people like Jack Johnson, by the actions of people like Jack Johnson. Anyway, Jess, I'm glad that you were here for that interview. And I'm glad that I was able to get to that, get that book to you as well. Jess, thank you so much for producing today. Also, thanks to Gerald Horn. Thanks to Alex Jerry for 
Booking today's guest, thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for doing Rotten History. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live stream, podcast host, whatever this is, Chuck Mertz. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>